You're listening to Constitutionally Sound from the Center on Constitutional Change. We'll be back in your feeds with new episodes in September, but for now, please enjoy this episode from our archive. For more from us throughout the summer, please visit our website, centeronconstitutionalchange.ac.uk, for the latest blogs and analysis. Hello and welcome to this edition of Constitutionally Sound, a podcast brought to you by the Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Alan Little, I'm a journalist and broadcaster, and for the next half hour or so, I'll be guiding you through this, the fifth episode in our series called Scottish Independence Then and Now. In 2014, Scotland voted by 55 to 45 that it should not be an independent country. Many thought that settled the matter for a generation. But then three things happened in quick succession. First, tens of thousands of mostly young people joined the Scottish National Party, boosting its membership numbers to historic new highs. Then, in 2015, the Labour Party's 50-year domination of Scottish politics evaporated. The SNP won 56 of Scotland's 59 Westminster seats at the UK general election, and Labour just won. A year later, Scotland voted by 62 to 38 that the UK should remain a member of the European Union. How has all that changed the calculus of the independence question? Does it change the independence proposition itself and the question of how Scotland might get from here to there? How much of what we argue about in 2014 remains essentially unchanged? And what new and still unresolved questions are raised by the United Kingdom's leaving the EU? Independence then and now. I'm joined by two people who are steeped in these questions. Nicola McEwen is Professor of Territorial Politics at the University of Edinburgh and Co-Director of the Centre on Constitutional Change. Her project, A Family of Nations, Brexit, Devolution and the Union, explores relations between the UK and the devolved governments against the backdrop of Brexit. Kieran Martin is a Professor of Practice in the Management of Public Organisations at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. Before that, he was the founding chief executive of the National Cyber Security Centre, a part of GCHQ. He had a 23-year career in the UK civil service, held senior roles in the cabinet office, including constitution director from 2011 to 2014, so a key period. So let's start with 2014. Nicola, the UK government agreed to issue a Section 30 order to allow the referendum to go ahead. Uh, just remind us what that was, and does it set a precedent for all future referendum? Very good question. So um, when the SNP was elected in 2011, and re-elected to government, but that time with an overall parliamentary majority, um, it claimed it had a mandate to pursue an independence referendum. And David Cameron, who was Prime Minister at the time, immediately recognised that mandate. And perhaps we'll hear a bit more from Kieran about why that may have been the case, and um, because there was no constitutional right to independence in the UK Constitution, but nor is there a constitutional barrier uh, to independence within the UK Constitution either. Now, under devolution, um, the Constitution is one of those matters that is reserved to the UK Parliament. So to hold a referendum that would be beyond legal doubt, uh, then it needed a transfer of authority from the UK Parliament to the Scottish Parliament um, to enable it to legislate for an independence referendum. And that's what the Section 30 order 
was all about. So it's transferring the authority to hold the referendum to decide the question and so on from Westminster to Edinburgh. Is is that the way it's going to be from now on, or, or is is other other routes are open? Well, that's the what what the first minister has called the gold standard. That's that's the ideal route because it removes the legal doubt that might surround any other route, and in particular, it makes the process and the referendum appear valid, appear legitimate, and it brought the UK government into that process of agreeing to the referendum being held and agreeing to respect the outcome of the referendum if it produced a yes vote. And that that bit is essential. Whatever route you choose, um, whatever attempt you try to make, then it's not just about a matter of law, it's also about a matter of politics. And you would need all sides of the debate to recognise the legitimacy of the process, and you would need the UK government to honour the result and accept the result if it was to produce a yes vote. It may well be that there are alternatives, but none of them are particularly attractive alternatives. Kieran, say something about the atmosphere in Westminster in those crucial years from 2011 to 2014. Why did David Cameron and George Osborne and the other top people in the UK government at that time agree to risk breaking up the United Kingdom when clearly their interests were uh, laying the opposite direction? I think what people missed and don't remember properly from 2011 is just how unexpected the overall majority was and how much this crept up on a London system that didn't really understand the Constitution. I've looked at some reporting from the weekend after the SNP's overall majority, and it said, you know, whilst some people say it is constitutionally, and these are major you know, titles, London titles, saying, well, some people believe it may be legally possible to stop Mr. Salmon's referendum. It is not a realistic uh, option. You know, the, 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 the idea of a referendum wasn't central to the 2011 campaign. Uh, you know, it's much more central to the 2021 campaign than it is to the 2011 campaign. And I think there was, um, uh, you know, I think that there were two, there was probably three things. Uh, one was an instinctive reluctance to block the referendum, given what people had voted for, because that would involve going to court and saying, you know what, I know Scotland's got its own rugby team and so forth, but in reality, it doesn't have a right to self-determination unless we say so. There was, that was an awkward thing to say in, in court. The second thing was, you know, it seemed worth the, it seemed worth the risk. It was a two-to-one opinion poll um, uh, uh, posture at that point. The Conservatives had on the very day that the Scottish National Party won its majority, won a decisive victory in its referendum on the voting system UK-wide. So it felt kind of confident about um, these things. So it was a decision that was really stumbled into. You know, I think looking, um, and there weren't people around who understood the Constitution. You know, um, the speed at which Mr. Cameron came out and conceded the principle of a referendum was really quite astonishing. He didn't have to do that. A little thought experiment. I often think, let's say that the SNP manifesto in 2011 um, had decided not to go for a referendum because the polls were too uh, uh, bad. They were they would be worried about losing one. And let's say instead they'd said, if we win an overall majority, we will uh, remove the nuclear deterrent from Scottish waters. I think London would have instinctively known, no, you don't have the power to do that. You're not doing that. That's a ridiculous notion. But it didn't really understand it. And this is where the Section 30 order and Nicola's points are really fascinating. 
Uh, Section 30 has become the sudden tablet of stone or gold standard in the first uh, minister's phrase. Section 30 was never designed to provide for an independence referendum. It was designed to iron out, in the 1998 Scotland Act, it was designed to iron out flaws and wrinkles in the devolution settlement. Oh, we got this transport classification devolution policy wrong. We don't need to bother Parliament with primary legislation. We'll do a Section 30 order by agreement. The idea that it was designed to be a facilitator for the referendum and the breakup of the UK was a complete nonsense. So this Section 30 was an improvised um, uh, measure. In fact, in those lonely days of 2011, when there weren't that many people working on this, Mr Cameron came under pressure from his own side to um, uh, to legislate in London for a referendum, but the Lib Dems would never have gone with that. They wanted a referendum, in their words, built in Scotland with the Scottish Parliament legislating for it. The UK could have gone alone and said, right, Mr Simon, you've got your mandate, but we're going to set the rules. They chose not to do that. So there are other ways. It's interesting you, you talk about how it crept up on uh, your colleagues in London. My own experience chimes with that. I was working in the London, the London newsroom of the BBC at that time. And on the day, the day after the, the election, which gave Alex Salmond his majority and made a referendum on the future of the United Kingdom uh, almost inevitable. The lead story on BBC News was uh, uh, the Lib Dems losing control of Sheffield City Council because they thought at the time that that, that had so-called UK national implications because Nick Clegg was the was the, de- the Deputy Prime Minister. And it took a long time for the culture of the newsroom in London to catch up with the reality of what had happened in Scotland. But you did touch on something very interesting there when you talked about the Scotland's right to self-determination. Is there a conflict between the idea that Scotland is a country with the right to self-determination on the one hand and the British constitutional tradition of uh, parliamentary sovereignty or the sovereignty of the Crown in Parliament? Michael Keating's view, he, he says, is, is that the, the doctrine of parliamentary so- sovereignty is an empty tautology. Westminster, he says, is sovereign because by virtue of its, of its sovereignty, it has declared itself so. But it, it, do those two constitutional notions clash? Nicola? Yes, in a, in a sense, they do. But the doctrine of self-determination is not unproblematic under any circumstances anyway, because who is the self that is to be determined? It could be argued that there is an implication for different parts of Scotland in this, or it could be argued that there is an implication for the whole of the UK because it would not be unaffected by um, Scottish independence. And that that came up when the in the Canadian case when the federal government made a reference to the Supreme Court of Canada to consider whether Quebec had a right, a unilateral right to secede under international law or under the Canadian constitution. And it concluded that there was no international legal right for a nation like Quebec or indeed a nation like Scotland uh, to secede under international law. But within the Canadian case, it recognised that there was an obligation on the part of the the Canadian authorities uh, to enter into negotiations on Quebec independence or sovereignty, it's referred to there, if there was a clear expression um, of from the people of Quebec that that was what they wanted. But it was recognition that there was an impact on everybody else as well. So it couldn't just be about what that particular territory wanted. It had to take into account um, the, the, wider, the wider picture and the wider system. And that's where I think, um, while it has been broadly recognised within the United Kingdom, um, that Scotland has a right to self-determination. Even Boris Johnson doesn't say you don't have that right. His defence is 
you had that right and you already expressed it not so long ago. And even Mrs. Thatcher didn't deny that right of Scotland to self-determination, but there is, I think, a recognition that it also has an impact for the United Kingdom as a whole. And so I think that's where the, the idea of this happening without any sort of negotiated arrangement or negotiated settlement, it seems um, to be highly unlikely. So, Kieran, uh, uh, Nicola mentioned uh, Quebec in Canada there, but that the, the, the Quebec case contrasts very sharply with the case of Catalonia in Spain, where the Spanish constitution directly prohibits that the Spanish constitution protects the territorial integrity and wholeness of Spain. Is the Scottish case much more similar to Quebec than it is to Catalonia? Well, yes and no. I mean, yes, in that Article 2 of the Spanish constitution thunders that the Kingdom of Spain is indivisible and you don't have to be a lawyer to understand what that means and doesn't mean and doesn't make Spain any less of a democracy, but it means a democracy where secession of any constituent part of it is not allowed. And that's why we are where we are in Catalonia. Um, but I think Quebec, um, the UK isn't Quebec, isn't Canada either uh, by choice. And this is what I think I've got uh, a problem with. Um, you know, the UK system can be fundamentally incurious. Uh, we talked a bit about 2011. You know, I think the other thing was there was just very little expertise around in these matters in 2011, which is one of the reasons why you know, the UK government was silent in 2011 between the SNP victory in May and January 2012 when it launched its Section 30 constitutional paper. And that, to Nicola's point, um, you know, again, if you look, I think 2011 is fascinating. If you look at that period, the Scottish government and Mr. Salmon in particular were very successful at creating this alternative reality where, you know, um, uh, the, the referendum was none of Westminster's business. You know, uh, Westminster, you know, didn't even have the right to negotiate its terms and, and so forth. And uh, Westminster somewhat uh, wrenched back the initiative in January 2012 um, uh, and did some quite clever uh, work in that period. The problem, I think, is that, you know, the attention span of Westminster, it's very transactional, it's very sequential. So as far as Westminster was concerned, on the morning of the 19th of September 2014, you know, Scotland was done. And it was now time, and literally within hours, you know, the Prime Minister uh, turned his attention to the question of English votes. And then, of course, the body politic turned its attention to the UK-wide general election and Brexit. And I think, the failing of the UK system, in contrast with Canada, you can have take your own views on Canada's rules and whether they're a good set of rules or a bad set of rules, but they're a set of rules. Um, uh, you know, Scotland voted, forget 55-45, it was 2.0 million to 1.6 million. That's close. 200,000 people change their views and you've got a different result. So you know the issue's not going to go away. It's a near-death experience for the union. Do you not maybe have a think about, well, are we going to rely on this once in a generation slogan, which is the same constitutional standing as 350 million pounds a week for the NHS, i.e. none? Are you going to are you going to rely on that? Or are you going to think about, OK, this is the United Kingdom for most of the three, you know, for most of the democrat, for, for virtually all of the democratic phase of the union, you know, Scottish separatism hasn't been an issue, but it now clearly is. Maybe it's time to have a think about how to handle this in the future. That was not done. And now we're back in 2021 when the issue of an independence referendum is primarily on the minds of the Scottish electorate in a way that it wasn't in 2011. And there's no roadmap out of a clash of mandate and law. That's a very, very difficult situation. And we are, in fact, at loggerheads because Boris Johnson has simply said, you can wait 45 years, because that was the gap between the, uh, the European community and the European Union uh, referendum. Is that sustainable in, in the long term, uh, Nicola? 
Talk about the politics of that. I think it very much depends on, well, first of all, what happens in the forthcoming elections. If the SNP wins and wins big, then clearly it will be bolstered and momentum would look to be on its side. Um, But also beyond that, what happens in the wider opinion polls, I think also matters. So for as long as support for independence hovers around the 50% mark, then it's relatively easy to say, well, look, this is an issue that divides Scotland. It's a divisive issue. And contrast that with um, the height of the Home Rule movement in the 1980s, the movement for a Scottish parliament, when um, this idea emerged that having a parliament was the settled will of the people of Scotland. So there was a clear majority then. That's not where we're at uh, with independence, even if it the support is sustained at sort of low 50s, a clear majority, it's not what we might think of as the settled will. So I think a lot depends on what happens within the wider public opinion. But one thing that intrigues me is that within the UK, um, there is a part of the UK that does have a constitutional right um, to leave the United Kingdom and rejoin um, another state. And the Northern Ireland Act, um, the Good Friday Agreement also, it's ambiguous, but it does provide for a referendum on that particular issue um, and suggests there is an obligation on the Secretary of State to make that happen and to act on the result with indeed a seven-year period um, as the, the minimal period between the different border poles. So that's obviously, Scotland is not Northern Ireland, but if you were looking for precedence, then um, there is that already uh, within UK law, of course, that's not where this administration um, and the UK government is going to go uh, with this issue uh, at all. Um, but it does it is, does suggest an interesting contrast here. Kieran, uh, how will the Scottish the UK government respond to the Scottish government's published intention uh, to uh, legislate for uh, what they call an advisory referendum in the event that uh, they win a pro-independence majority in May? Uh, the Westminster refuses to issue a Section Thirty order. They, they plan to go ahead and hold a, a referendum anyway. I mean, it's not the First Minister's preferred option because it's not the gold standard. All the pro-union parties would have to do would say, our member, our supporters will boycott this, deny it any uh, legitimacy. No, no, no referendum of that sort can, be, can enjoy international recognition, for example. Uh, but it does seem that the SNP's hope is that the UK government will go to the courts to have the courts declare that referendum illegitimate or unconstitutional. Now, that is not a good look for a government that was whose supporters only very recently accused the courts of obstructing the will of the people on Brexit. So clearly that's the, the, the politics of this manoeuvre. What will how will the UK government respond, do you think? Well, I think the clue is very much in your question, Alan. And I think there's a there's a slightly arcane but potentially profoundly important point here about the law officers. Um, so the law officers, so the Attorney General, um, the Solicitor General for England and Wales, and the Advocate General for Scotland, who is, of course, a UK government law officer. It was Jim Wallace back in 2011, who was a crucial uh, player in this period. The law officers are under a duty. Uh, it's not a matter of choice. If they think that uh, one of the devolved parliaments has uh, exceeded its um, 
mandate, it's exceeded its legal remit, uh, the law officers are under a duty to refer that to the uh, court. So the way in which we considered this very carefully in 2011, 2012, and uh, the run of the Section 30 uh, bills, we thought, well, um, if the Scottish Parliament went ahead with a referendum bill, uh, someone's going to take it to the court, you know, it's a private citizen somewhere, some unionist somewhere will take it and it'll go through the court of session and all of that, um, but then it'll probably likely end up being appealed all the way to the uh, Supreme Court. But if the law officers feel that um, it is uh, it is exceeding the powers of the Scottish Parliament, they have to do that. And um, so it will end up in court. And then you're in that position, um, as you say, Alan, where it's not a good look, because as we were talking about earlier, they won't be saying, oh, but... Nicola Sturgeon, you, when you were Deputy First Minister in 2014, you said it was once in a generation. That's not a legal argument. They're going to be saying Scotland has no right to self-determination. Scotland isn't a proper uh, country. That's going to be the legal argument. So it's going to be very awkward for them. And then let's think about the potential outcomes of that court case. Well, there are two. One is um, the UK government win and the Scottish government's uh, plans are declared illegal. So therefore, they have to be stopped because you can say what you like about the SNP, but they've never acted knowingly unlawfully in government or elsewhere. So you would expect them to drop their plans and come up with some other political strategy. Uh, if, however, you know the court managed to find a way of, um, uh, if the Scottish government managed to find a way of having their argument declared legal by the Supreme Court, uh, then you know you could have a boycott or or whatever the UK government could just refuse to recognise it. But ultimately, because Parliament is sovereign, Parliament could pass a law declaring that law illegal. So all the legal powers. I find this thing about legal powers a little bit of a red herring because ultimately the UK Parliament can block a referendum. It absolutely can. It could pass a piece of legislation saying that piece of legislation that the Supreme Court declared lawful is now unlawful. That is within the sovereign Parliament's purview. So it is fundamentally a question of law versus uh, mandate and a political judgment about how you deal with that, for which there is no roadmap. There are There is the precedent of 2011, which the UK government has explicitly said it will not follow. There are sort of comparable things, as um, Nicola has said, about Northern Ireland, but there is no real roadmap, and I think that's a real problem. And of course, all of these options that you outlined there, the legal one, the political one, and the sovereignty one, and so on, they all carry the danger of stoking further support for independence in Scotland, especially among the young. And when you look at the, the, the demographics of support for independence, time is not on the union side. But let's, let's look finally in this episode at what the independence proposition means today. Some things haven't changed since 2014. We still have an unresolved question over the currency, although the SNP has a clearer roadmap now to an independent Scottish pound in time. But Brexit has changed a lot, and in particular the question of whether Scotland could be or should be uh, seeking to rejoin the European Union. Rejoining the European Union would, of course, put a, a trade border. Uh, and we've already seen the difficulties that that has caused between the UK and or certainly between Britain and the European Union. Let me ask you both, do you think that uh, it would be easy for Scotland to rejoin the European Union? First of all, would the European Union say yes? And secondly, would it be wise for an independent Scotland to seek to rejoin the European Union? Or should it seek a closer trading relationship with the rest of the UK, at least in the short to medium term, Nicola? I think one of the things that is different is that the route to becoming an EU member state is clearer because it's already set out in the treaties. Scotland would be applying um, 
to join from the outside. So it would be a standard accession process. And I would be reasonably confident that um, it would be recognised as a valid applicant in the sense of satisfying the criteria of democracy and so on. That doesn't mean that the negotiations would be easy. And um, I think we would expect the European Union to um, want assurances um, that Scotland as an EU member state would be committed to the project. And then I think actually issues of currency are interesting because although there is no immediate um, expectation of joining the euro, I think the absence of that idea of the euro as Scotland's currency in the debate is interesting um, and notable, I think, from the EU perspective. Other issues, I think they could negotiate a way out of. So you talked about the border issue in, in theory a new EU member state would be expected to join the Schengen area where there is free, free travel and visa-free travel throughout um, the, those countries that are members of that. But I don't see that as being a, a necessary requirement. I think there, there would be a reasonable expectation of an opt-out from that, just as Ireland is not part of that, to allow for people to move freely across these islands, just as they did before independence. But I think where the border um, would matter is that the border between Scotland and the rest of the UK would become a border between the European Union and the United Kingdom. And we've seen, uh, again, uh, with respect to the border on the island of Ireland and the sea border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, how that matters in trade terms. It matters in terms of a regulatory border. And I think it does create difficult challenges, not insurmountable challenges, but it creates challenges that were not present in 2014. But because we are so caught up in these issues of process and who has the right to decide, we're not really getting into these tricky issues and we're not really um, seeing any proposals about how these challenges might be confronted. I'm sure some people are working on it, but it's relatively easy for the pro-independence camp to avoid these sorts of difficult issues just now. But I think it would be something that would have to be addressed if we got to the stage of having a referendum. Kieran, getting back into the EU. Well, Nicola's right that it's a very different proposition than 2014 um, because there was no route for a part of an existing member state to become a member of the European Union in its own right from within. And actually, I think that some of the UK government's assertions in 2014 about what would happen were probably quite potentially wrong. It's quite possible, as Sir David Edward argued, that the European Court of Justice would have uh, refused to expel uh, Scottish citizens from the the Union. Whereas in this case, at least in principle, there is a route uh, back in and it's a very clear uh, route of accession. I do think if you know there's prolonged sterlingization, as it's called, that may be a problem. So this currency issue could come up, uh, could come back to haunt the debate in different uh, ways. But I, I, a personal view, um, based on the experience of the last decade of referendums, you know, the speculation about the debate around Scotland in 2014 about what would an independent Scotland look like versus the reality of Brexit, where the UK as a whole did vote for constitutional change, is that sometimes, um, particularly in the Scottish case, we mistake. Um, you know, complexity and a very difficult task involving lots of hard choices with stuff that's completely unknowable. 
you know, there was a slightly hysterical aspect to the 2014 debate that, you know, Scotland couldn't possibly uh, attain some sort of, you know, nationhood or independent statehood and, and so forth, which just didn't seem to, you know, of course, it would be, um, on, on, the, on the unionist side, there was this sort of, you know, slightly hysterical narrative that uh, it would be all far, far too difficult and Scotland was, you know, what was the phrase, too wee, too poor and so forth. On the nationalist side, uh, despite the fact that they were proposing the uh, most radical constitutional change for centuries, there was a there was a sort of assertion that it would involve minimal change, and I think you know uh, broadly speaking, it's do you want the continuing um, uh, benefits of you know the larger UK, but with being politically overruled, but from time to time on big issues like Brexit, for example, where Scotland was in effect overruled, or do you want you know more economic um, uh, risk certainly in the short term, but you know um, the, the sort of life of a small Northern European um, uh, independent state with significant disruption to to getting there. So I think there is a sort of discernible choice uh, emerging. But I think just to finish, um, you know, I would endorse uh, Nicola's point about you know I think. Um, the fact that we're tied up in process uh, is um, uh, taking attention away from the more valid issues of the um, of, of the debate. And I do come back to the point that it is a failing of statecraft, particularly at the UK part, that we don't have a, a rule book. We've already talked about the invention of Section 30 as, uh, as the mechanism for this. And a final sort of anecdote is that um, it could have been that um, uh, almost as an oversight, the power to, to have a referendum on independence could have been devolved permanently to the Scottish Parliament. And that almost happened. And about a month before, in the Section 30 negotiations and in the Edinburgh Agreement negotiations, uh, because key texts had been removed months earlier, uh, there was no time limit on the devolution of the Section 30 power. And a bunch of us noticed this. And we said, well, um, hang on, uh, you know, I know the intention is that this is once in a generation, but literally read, this has no time limit. The original Section 30 draft order in the January 2012 paper did have a time limit. Uh, later drafts didn't. So the Edinburgh Agreement contains five key words at the end of the, I think, the second paragraph, which says before the end of 2014. And so does the Section 30 order. That was the constitutional sort of innovation uh, the improvisation of that period, and we're back there again. I didn't know that. Nicola? No, I, th I, th I think that's absolutely fascinating. But I do, I do think that the, the, your point about the power of self-government and that argument at the core of the independence debate is a really important one. And we saw with Brexit that that can almost lead to an acceptance of some of the complexities and, and the difficulties. But there are difficult choices here. We talked in 2014 about the independence on offer as being independence light because there was so much um, that was envisaged to still be carried on with the UK. A new partnership of equals was the phrase that was used um, a lot. Incidentally, a phrase also used by the UK government in relation to the European Union. But I think some of the things that were envisaged then wouldn't be practical now because of Brexit and because essentially there would be two potentially very different regulatory regimes here. So you wouldn't be able to combine all of the things. You may be able to combine some of them with political will, uh, but there would be harder things, harder issues um, to, to address. How much that matters in the context of a referendum debate? Well, we should have to wait and see if we get there. Paradoxically, of course, Brexit makes Scottish independence arguably more likely, but at the same time, much more difficult. 
So thank you both very much indeed. To learn more about all of this, you can download free a new book called Scotland's New Choice, Independence After Brexit. You'll find it on the website of the Centre on Constitutional Change. And catch up with Kieran when he launches his new paper on Scotland and independence referendums at an event hosted by the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford on Tuesday the 13th of April from 5pm to 6.30 when he'll be in conversation with Scotland's leading historians who came out in support of independence just before the 2014 referendum, Professor Sir Tom Devine. Thanks very much for listening. 